there's so much about what has happened in California and just the gig worker stuff that is indicative of our changing approach to how we work. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and joining me once again will be the very talented, very witty LA lawyer, Rudy Salo. Our guest today is journalist Liz Farmer, and we are talking about what is the gig economy? How is this changing our notion of work, of employee, of independent contractor? What are the laws that are involved? How does this impact transportation and our city life? If you've ever used Uber or Lyft, or DoorDash, or any of those other app-based services, then you're going to learn a lot more about the details behind how that is working. Before we get started, I want to thank the listeners for your ratings and for your reviews. If you haven't yet, please review the show. If you'd like to get in touch, we're on Instagram, goodisinthedetailspod, or you can email goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. Okay, now, let's talk gig economy. Well, first of all, welcome back to the show, Liz. (laughs) Thank you so much. Last time we talked, it was about the work-life balance or working from home. And this time, yeah, I want to dig into gig economy. Something that hit me is that in philosophy, when we're talking about structuring arguments and the language that we use, I always try to, you know, tell the students we think in language. And so whenever there is a word shift, it's because there's an idea shift. And what we have here now with this notion of the gig economy, I guess we should define what that is, but the distinction between employee and independent contractor and all that comes with it. And from what I understand is that the 30-year mortgage is based on the notion that you work in one place forever, but everything is changing. Even skills that you have with working, whatever you learn and work-wise is pretty much going to be obsolete in 10 years. So you have to figure out how to keep up with everything. And that's all perpetuating this idea of, you know, a little job here and a job there. Let's just start out with what does gig economy mean? Well, I think a lot of people think it just refers to Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, uh, you know, app-based companies. And I think that's I mean, in one sense, that is where the word came from. But in a policy sense, in a legal sense, it really refers to people who just aren't full-time employees who work from gig to gig. So musicians are gig, you know, technically gig economy. I mean, so that's, you know, like the the law, I and mean, Rudy would know more about this. I am not a lawyer, but, you know, the law and policymakers look at it that way. So when you are trying to regulate or trying to create rules for the gig economy, it encompasses basically everyone who is not a wage employee, really, but who is a regular worker of some kind. You hit the nail on the head. That's a, that's a very, I'm glad you brought up. So it's, it's an app based. So think about your you know, smartphone or some kind of way that you can get a ping electronically about a gig, you know, whether that be picking up somebody with your car or delivering some food. I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you are with, you know, Fiverr. Fiverr is a way where you can get, you know, freelance artists in order to do a gig for you, right? But the change, the Prop 20, the, the Prop 22 that came into effect um, on election day here in California was tied primarily to the drivers, you know, the Uber, Lyft, the, the food delivery people, the other gig workers, if you will, you know, the musicians, the, the film people, the other types of, you know, people of the arts, they're still gig workers, but they're still subject to AB5 and, and those types of regulations. So it's just kind of a gigantic mess, right? Yeah, California tried to put in AB5 in order to put some work protections in order to put in some health benefits. From what I've talked about with my labor attorneys, just prior to AB5 and then after the implementation of AB5, people were running their hands through the hair going, this is not 
very well written. It's so poorly written, it's gonna be so hard to implement, and then it's just gonna to lead to massive amounts of lawsuits. And so that's one of the arguments against AB5 was that it was too overreaching. The pendulum swung too far to the, I'll just say it, to the left. And I don't think we're gonna see the end of this battle over AB5 just because Prop 22 passed. I think it's gonna be an ongoing legal battle. To go back to your original question, Gwen, of what is a gig worker or what is the gig economy? It's fluid. It's not something that, I, I don't think it's black and white. I think it's something that's gonna, as we see technology uh, affecting the way that we work, the way that we learn, the way that we consume, the way that we, the way that we consume everything, yeah. everything's going to be kind of fluid. So like we have a gig economy right now. And I think that's just going to continue to grow into the future. It's when state legislatures try to, you know, try to implement laws that don't necessarily contemplate the use of technology and that it just kind of just continues to become um, a mess, literally. I mean, think about it. California was the only state that had an AB5. Other states tried to pass similar laws and they kind of failed because they were really looking at the California experiment. I mean, California tends to do that. We, we tend to pass laws and then other states kind of look to us and see how we implement it. And unfortunately, AB5 just continues to be a mess. So can, can we back yeah. up for, for one second? I'm sorry, sure. Rudy. I want to clarify, what is the distinction or is there a legal distinction between an independent contractor and a freelancer? And then maybe if you could say, what is AB5? There really isn't a distinct, I mean, for, for legal reasons, there really isn't a, a, a distinction between an independent contractor and a freelancer. It's basically one and the same. Like you can, you can say, oh, I'm a freelancer, I'm an independent contractor. Heck, you can even probably say consultant. I mean, consultants are, 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 could fall into the umbrella of the independent contractor. You hire a freelancer or an independent contractor or a consultant for a specific gig, a specific task. They're not working for you all day, every day. Technically, you're not managing them, right? You give, you give them a, a gig, you give them some work, and then they do it through their own skills. That's kind of like a, a really broad 300,000 foot definition. Whereas an employee has to listen to the employers. It has to take the employer's direction. It's under the management. It has guidelines. It has, it has policies. Now, the weird thing of Uber and Lyft is you know, it was really great, right? I mean, drivers would didn't have to work. You turned on the app when you wanted to work, you, you worked. You had to meet some minimum guidelines of safety, of um, cleansiness in your car and driver-passenger interaction. But other than that, you work when you wanted to. It was entirely up to you. You managed yourself, which is different than an employee-employer relationship. When you, when you actually work for somebody, you have set hours. You have to show up on time. You have to meet certain guidelines. You have to meet certain goals. So those are one of the distinctions. Liz, I'm sure you probably have some more. Yeah, I was just thinking about what you're saying. And like, there's so much about what has happened in California and just the gig worker stuff that is indicative of our changing approach to how we work. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, my parents, they had, my dad had the same job. My mom had the same job at like the one place or maybe the couple of places, right? But their resumes weren't like, how do I squish all this information into one page question? It's, um, you know, and now it's like, you know, I have a friend who every couple of years, he gets a new leadership job at a new company because that's just what he does. And I remember, uh, you know, when I changed my job two jobs ago to work for Governing Magazine and, and I've been at my previous place for two years, I remember my dad asking me like, how's that going to look on your resume? And I'm just like, this is what's up now. You know, and millennials, especially, I mean, they're just continuing that trend. So 
we're getting ingrained into the way we think about jobs. Like we will hop from one job to the next, whether it's, you know, the official, like a gig job or, or a wage job. So like there's that that's already kind of like built in. But the other thing I was thinking about is what's happening in California and how AB5 was approached, both points to the great things about being a gig worker and the not great things about being a gig worker. So like when Uber and Lyft first started, it was great. I mean, you could like Brittany said, you could work when you wanted to work. It was the side gig. It was a side job. Or if you did it enough, you could make it a full-time thing. But you were in charge of when you worked, how often you worked. You didn't have an employer telling you this is when you have to show up. Oh, hey, can you come in on Saturday? Any of that stuff. Like You were in control. And that's the great thing about being an independent contractor. And then the bigger Uber and Lyft got, and I think this is more true for Uber than Lyft. And you know, there were no, there's no such thing as like benefits, benefits, but the company started changing some of the terms. And that's the downside of being an independent contractor is you don't really have any say over if the people paying you decide that they don't want to pay you as much, you can say, okay, or you can say no, and then you don't work for them anymore. Like there's really, they don't, they didn't have that negotiating power. And that's where, you know, it's great it, where unions can be helpful. And so the unions were really the ones kind of pushing what was going on in California because drivers wanted more of a say collectively across the nation. They were a, a big workforce, but individually they had no power. That's where it kind of the backstory of where a lot of this came from, where AB5 came, um, where a lot of the, I guess, drama and controversy came from. But originally, like we were saying, the idea of being a gig worker goes back a long time before, you know, the app-based economy. AB5 came about because of a lawsuit that started in 2005 filed by truck workers who said that their employer was misclassifying them. And that's something that happens all across the country. Employers want label an, uh, someone who works for them as an independent contractor in order to save on those labor costs. I'll give a really quick example of when I was a gig worker. Between undergrad and law school, I was a substitute teacher. And I was a substitute teacher at numerous school districts throughout Southern California. And, and basically how I worked was I would get a phone call um, either the night before or that morning. And I was told you show up at this school at this particular time. And when I didn't want to work because I was studying for the LSAT or I was out of town, I just turned off my phone and I didn't take the gig. And so gig worker concepts have been around for a long time. It's just it's really gotten hyper-focused with technology and app-based systems. Yeah. Just in relation to that, I mean, that's what it's making me think about the university system because why there's been this radical shift from tenure professors to adjunct. I mean, you can look up that adjunct professors are now the new working poor. And why would a university be investing all this money into a tenured professor when they can hire three adjuncts with no benefits for the same amount? I have to say with this gig economy, it's making me think with all this possible of the side hustle and this and that, everyone I know now is always working. Everyone <laughs> is always working. Nobody has a job. It doesn't exist anymore. Everybody is always doing something else. I mean, it's like, you know, i to back up, I remember when I was living in Belgium and I had, I was teaching English as a second language. And I remember the night before one of my classes that I had to teach, I had forgotten to make some photocopies and it was around 630 in the evening. And I thought, oh shoot, you know, I don't have this for tomorrow. And then I realized there is nothing I can do. And it was so freeing because in Belgium, all the businesses close at around six o'clock. 
Oh and gosh. so I realized there was not, and I just continued to enjoy my dinner. You know, I was just like, wow, there is nothing I can do. But if I was in the United States, no, because everything is open 24 seven, you are expected to be working 24 seven. And now I'm thinking that with the gig economy, everybody has more than one job now. So I'm thinking about the quality of life that is happening as a result of this. Oh, for sure. And the cost of living. You mentioned in your article, the California cost of living. Liz, taking this whole concept and the problem of the gig economy and problem of everything that we're talking about and how decentralized you know, work really is these days, how does that play? Because I know you've written a lot on this topic. You know, I've written a lot on this topic. How do you, and this, I think this is a perfect segue into, how do you think the gig economy, there's so many, there's so many salvos going against the future of cities as we know it, right? Cities being those the centralized place where, you know, work is and the economy is and life is. But how do you think the gig economy and, you know, now Prop 22, how do you think that's going to affect, is that affect the future of cities? Is that one, you know, major salvo against the future of cities? Or is it a, is it a minor one in COVID and everything else and the internet and everything all going in affecting the future of cities? Do you think that actually will play a role in the negative impact in the future of cities? And if it's a, if there is a role, a big one or a small one? Hmm. There's, a, there's a lot in there. So in terms of kind of the shape, how cities will be shaped in the future, you know, where people work obviously is a huge part of that. And so I think cities are always going to have people drawn to them. I mean, that's, that's their thing. They will always be the cultural and for the most part, the business center of our economy. But I think what the idea of being able to pick up your job and take it with you, if you are a gig worker and when I still hear you on the balance and like being able to have something that actually works for you and the people you're working with versus people just taking advantage of you because you want to work for, you know, you want a job and they're going to you know pay you money. I mean, that's a true working partnership is like, is what you would want when you're an independent contractor, when you are a gig worker, but kind of setting all that aside for the moment. Cities are, have already been transformed by the gig economy with Airbnb, obviously. I mean, just with the hotels, kind of the entertainment and tourism aspect of cities has already been transformed. And I think what I'm hoping cities have learned from that is the fact that they need to be thinking at least in real time with whatever the new app-based economy is going to come up with next. They were so, so, so behind on Airbnb, on Uber. I mean, I remember covering city council hearings in Washington, D.C. when the Uber CEO, this was when Uber was kind of new, was testifying before the committee. And and the, the council committee was just looking at him like they didn't understand what his deal was. And they were, you could tell everyone was annoyed with each other in that room. <laughs> but it was just, I mean, the city was caught flat-footed and every city was caught flat-footed in that way. And I think let's please learn our lesson from the last 10 years of stuff like this happening again and again. I mean, many cities now are starting to regulate and kind of get that tax revenue back that they lost. So hopefully um, cities can learn from that and continue and, and at least not be caught flat-footed so much again. And that's kind of the money aspect. But I do think that what we have here is an opportunity cities have really kind of been the focus of, I would say, at least the last half century, if not the last full century. We have been more and more moving into cities. Right now, we have an opportunity to kind of reverse that flow a little bit. Like I said, I think cities are always going to be the centers of XYZ. 
but it's those mid-sized cities, those company towns that have really, really, really lost out on this, you know, transformation over the last 50, 100 years. And we have now a moment for those mid-sized cities to be able to market themselves to people who don't want to pay through the nose for rent or whatever it is and who want a different kind of quality of life, but they have just been forced to live in or around a city because of their job. And I think that's the real exciting part here. Do you think, and I think about this a lot, I really do. I, I, I didn't even kind of, I play this out in some of the science fiction that I write. Is it possible that one future of cities with the internet, with the gig economy, with the ability of a lot of us, not everyone, but let's just say a good portion of the service side, those enough lucky to work from home, you know, especially in COVID. Is it possible that, of course, there's always going to be cities, not going to be death of cities, but however, but could the focus of cities be on entertainment, on cultural institutions, on, you know, it's a place where people go for temporary stints uh, away from the suburbs or away from wherever that they live or or from other like very smaller towns and that kind of historically is what what cities were but you know then people started to move back into the cities and they were living in the cities there was this you know let's forget the suburbs let's move back in mm-hmm. that, that reversal perhaps what replaces it is more entertainment things that you need to do in person things that you need to see with your own eyes like more museums you know Esports arenas, sports arenas, whatever it is. Do you think that that is one of the futures of cities? I can't believe you brought up esports. <laughs> I'm obsessed um, with esports. I am not. So I, I, I don't. I don't play esports, but my law firm, Nixon Peabody, we're one of the premier esports firms in the country. We were the first firms that like focused on esports, and I was a big part of that because I used to do sports stadiums, and I think esports mm-hmm. arenas are going to be huge in the future. And, and like I said, I do. I play that out in a lot of the science fiction that I write, and I have an article that I'll send you about how cities should be focusing on esports arenas and hear how you finance it and everything like that. That's a whole other thing. But yeah, I'm just curious about your thoughts. Like do cities become primarily like, I mean, Las Vegas is just one big entertainment center. Well, okay. But maybe all cities become that. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. I think, I mean, that's one way to go, but I think uh, you do run the risk of being kind of a one note place and, and which isn't bad as far as tourism goes, but, or maybe it is, I don't know. I'm not a tourism expert, but it is a bit of a risk when you're thinking about how to have a thriving place that can get through the good times and the bad. So, I mean, Las Vegas is having a really hard time because they are so tourism based. Um, You know, all of that spending that was happening there is not happening and that's hurting how much the city is able to take in, spend on, you know, the people who live there full time. So you do kind of leverage yourself that way, you know, you could make that conscious decision as, as a policymaker in, in, you know, as a city, and then kind of take the steps, I guess, to still be able to have balance, at least in terms of how much money you're taking in. But I do actually, honestly, I'm a huge history nerd. And I personally would love to see cities start looking more like they did, you know, a hundred years ago, except obviously with more inclusivity and diversity, but in terms of how they're used, I mean, you know, neighborhoods and open air markets, and you could walk five blocks and pretty much get everything you needed. Um, Hopping on a trolley to get from point A to point B. I realize this is very idealistic, but I do see, you know, the opportunity to make cities more usable again from not just from nine to five or not just from like six to midnight, but every hour of the day for people to live there, work there. You know, I've always, I always thought it would be neat for, you know, an entire 
a corporate block, you know, not the company town, but like the company block where a corporation, you know, owns, and maybe this is not the greatest idea, but, you know, the idea of being able to have a spot in the town where there's, you know, a company headquarters and a lot of people who work there also live nearby. You know, there's the grocery store where you can get a company discount. I mean, just stuff like that, where if you are a little bit more creative in terms of thinking about how to make cities an attractive place for people to live in all the time and not just use, I think that's where you're going to get the value because I was, I was one of the people I talked to, Nick Kittle, for this story, for this piece for the Rockefeller Institute, talked a lot about, you know, open space and just kind of that organic way of, you know, what draws people to a city. And you can have tax breaks, you can have, you know, affordable housing and all of that stuff. But to really draw people, you know, you got to have a good soul. And that's what it comes down to. I mean, that arts and entertainment, of course, is crucial. Open space, appealing to people of all generations, uh, not just the rich working stiffs who can afford to live there. I think that affordable, there's a huge opportunity for affordable housing right now in cities, and we can talk more about that. But just the creativity in using the space. Cities have done it before by redeveloping industrial land into, you know, ballparks, stadiums, whatever. They can do it again with this. It's just going to be a bit harder because we're talking about expensive corporate office space. Yeah. And unfortunately, in California, <laughs> the last time we had a gigantic budget crunch in the, uh, you know, after after the 2008-2009 recession, we got rid of redevelopment agencies. Redevelopment, a lot of, you know, Old Town Pasadena and a lot of, a lot of urban centers that got redone, exactly what you're saying, these industrial areas that got take, um, reconfigured, that was done through redevelopment agencies. And in order to fix some budget gaps and some other ideas of, you know, some, some abuse of redevelopment funds and, and everything, Governor Brown got rid of all redevelopment agencies. That has stalled, if you will, the ability to, you know, use property taxes and tax increment financing in order to reduce some of these areas. And, and we've spent the last 10 years trying to come up with redevelopment 2.0, and it's been very, very complicated. It's very difficult to do because what we had before worked great. Yeah, there were some issues in these new EIFDs, the Enhanced Infrastructure Financing Districts and, and these other redevelopment 2.0 ideas to replace them. We haven't caught that much legs underneath them. I mean, they started to. They actually started to recently and then COVID hit. And then, and then you had opportunity zones come in and opportunity zones now, you know, have gotten kind of a, some bad taste in people's mouths. And you know, it's just kind of, it's, it's going to be really, really interesting to see and watch the future of cities and how cities do react. Just exactly what you're saying, like, well, what do we do from here? And the future impacts of COVID on it. I mean, every local government that I've been working for has been going to the market, refinancing all of its debt, taking advantage of these historic low interest rates, but they're primarily just doing refinancings. There's not a lot of new money. There's not a lot of new infrastructure yet being put into there. And one of the issues is as well, do we really know yet how much of, an, of the hit COVID is going to have on the revenue of some of these cities, counties, other types of governments. That's what we're focused on in 2021, 2022, 2023. And I'm sure you are as well, just kind of with your background being a municipal you know, finance expert as well. Do you think that we even know a hint of COVID's impact yet on the revenues of local governments? I think it's really, so the short answer is no, but we can at least we can look to what some of the survey results have been from local governments. And uh, when you look at property taxes, a lot of local governments expect their property taxes to be down over the next year. And whether that's due to just late payments or new assessments, you know, that it depends place by place. 
but you know, there was, I think that, I think it's in New Orleans, the tax assessor went ahead and reassessed all the commercial buildings at a lower value because the idea, you know, they're, they're, that's another place where the tourism and, you know, entertainment industry has been hit so hard. And, um, you know, it's legit, right? I mean, these hotels, I mean, all these places are not taking the income that they were a year ago. And much of the assessment value is based on how much does this property earn. So that's like a one-year look, but I don't think we know what the permanent effect is going to be. I think it really depends on, I think we do know there is going to be some kind of effect. For sure, um, people who have gotten used to working from home right now are not going to go back to commuting in five days a week. Some of them might, certainly not all of them are, and some of them might never. So um, we have to take that into account. That's going to affect how people use roads, where they want to live, all of the stuff we've been talking about. And I think where they decide to live, there's so many different factors there. We can't make accurate predictions yet. What we can look to, though, is kind of what were the trends before the pandemic and the trends were that people were, there was a, you know, anecdotal, slightly factual based trend of millennials starting to move out of big cities. I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal whenever that was happening. Oh God, it was only like a year ago. It seems like it was five years ago, (laughs) but about, you know, why we moved away from the Washington DC area. And, you know, and I know every time I'm on with you, we have internet connections and that's one of the downsides, but, um, so wait, I'm sorry. So are you saying, are you saying you're a millennial? You're, you're putting that, you're putting that that horrible brand on yourself. How dare you? I thought we were friends. What's the matter with you? I, I am a fringennial because oh, I love <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. I've never heard that one. <laughs> Thank you. Depending on which measurement you use, I'm either Gen X or I'm millennial. I'm like right on the fringe. So that's what I call myself. Um, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm hardcore Gen X. Like, like I, I, I don't, I don't have any tattoos, but if I ever did, it'd either be the names of my children or like Gen X because I nice. just love being Gen X and sorry. Go, go ahead. Or good like as every Gen X is like that. You. that's awesome but yeah i mean so you can look at the trends before the covid pandemic were that people millennials were starting to move out of big cities i mean there's you could see this desire of people who had mobile jobs were taking advantage of that and so that was a slow and simmering trend that has been just you know lit up like a firework right now and so i would expect to see that continue i do expect to see a benefit in the exurbs in particular, uh, where you can get that balance of being close enough to a city, but not affected so much by home values and all the other things. So that's my prediction, but about it. I have a question about, I think I'm thinking about the quality of life of what happens because the independent contractor or the freelancer, it sounds like, you know, there, there is all this freedom and choosing when you can work and when you can't. And I'm thinking about also what we don't have, it's, um, you know, like maybe the holiday bonus from your boss or, you know, the, the holiday party or you're part of a family or that thing. And the other thing I've noticed in Black Mirror did a really great episode toying around with this idea is that with the gig economy, because there isn't an employer, everybody is, you know, you're at the service of everybody essentially. And you've got to paste a smile on your face as you do your delivery or whatnot, because you are going to be rated. And I'm wondering what kind of an impact that has on somebody's authenticity and the stress level and how much they enjoy their life and also everybody else thinking that they can just judge everybody else's job. I mean, everybody now is in charge because of these app type works of rating other people. So I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts with the gig economy and then the quality of life, some of the pros and some of the cons? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, if your gig economy is that of delivery driver, you know, any kind of driving, 
app-based thing. If that's the structure of, of your primary income and, and you're that kind of gig worker where you're, you're earning a lower wage for what you, what you do, um, but you are, that's a trade-off for the flexibility and everything else then yeah, you kind of do live in fear of what you talked about. You may be in control of like the you know, thumb hitting the screen to accept a pickup, but you're not in control of what, what terms the app company may change on you. You're not in control. You're in control as much as you can be, but yeah, you know, you have a bad experience with a driver and, or with a rider, excuse me. And that can really directly impact your income. You know, you're a wage employee and you get a bad review. You might not get a promotion. Um, you might not get a raise, but you have to do something really bad in most places to, to get an actual demotion and like wage cut. Like that doesn't really happen a lot anyway. I'm sure it's happened to somebody who's listening. But, you know, my point being is that you, there are so many more protections in the traditional job world. And what we're, as we've seen, again, this is one of those like pre-pandemic trends that I think is going to be accelerated. More and more people are getting their incomes from a non-traditional job. And once again, state and lo local government policy is sort of slow to kind of wake up to that. And circling it back to the beginning, what happened in California with policymakers trying to take a stab at regulating it, I agreed. They didn't regulate what the reality was. They took a stab at it and it's great for like this one slice of a type of gig worker. It didn't have enough considerations for all the different types of independent contractors and other ways that you can, other non-traditional ways that you can earn an income. And I think state and local governments, state governments, obviously, because this is really their purview, need to look at what happened in California. And they are, New York, New Jersey, they are kind of sitting there watching, you know, and take a look and figure out what is the best way that we can acknowledge that the worker, that the job roles are changing, the traditional job roles are changing, and there are protections that were put in place 50, 60 years ago that just aren't working today because a lot of people don't have that kind of job anymore. I'm just wondering culturally, is this a, an American thing? Would you know about that? Like, is there our attitude toward work? Can you see this? Is this unique to the U.S.? Or can you see this in Western Europe, this gig economy type thing? I don't know about gig, but I do get the sense, you know, as far as you talked about work-life balance and being unplugged, I, I feel like Europe, it, this probably goes from country to country, but, you know, certain countries in Europe have a ban on, you know, your, your employer sending you an email outside of working hours. France has a oh. 30 five hour work week yeah. I could be wrong on that number yeah yeah I mean good lord wouldn't we have all loved that and, <laughs> and when you go out to dinner it's like three hours and no waiter is telling you giving you the bill yeah. asking you to leave here's, yeah. here's you no know, you're she's absolutely correct Europe does things differently here's what I think is one of the major difference psychologically and historically between us and literally the rest of the world here in the United States our government has decided to take the position of you know what your corporations are the ones that historically take care of you. They give you your pensions. They give you your health. Right. Then your corporations are almost like quasi-governments. Whereas other places of the world, the government takes care of your health insurance. The government takes care of your pensions. There is that social net that the government provides. That's the, you know, I'm putting my fingers up. That's the socialism, you know, boogeyman that we here in the United States hate. I mean, I'm saying, you know, we is in, you know, certain parts of this country yeah. that are colored red, we, whatever, but not, not <laughs> my point. Um, that, that is the major difference. That's, that's the thinking. Here, your corporation is supposed to take care of you, right? And think about the gig economy. One of the major things about it is, uh, you know what? We're not going to take care of you. 
you're going to take care of yourself. You want to work, work. You don't want to work, don't work. You want to get health insurance, you pay for it on your own. Although I think as a part of Prop 22, there's a new health insurance subsidy and there's some, there are some things that they're providing to workers. It's not like they got nothing. I mean, they got, they got, uh, I think they got like some accident insurance subsidies and some other types of subsidies, but that's the major difference between us and, and the rest of the world. I never looked um, at it that way. The corporation is like a mini government. You're right. Is. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I remember, I remember in, in Belgium, just another example, I dropped off something at the dry cleaners. And then when I went to go pick it up, there was a sign that said they were going to be gone for three weeks. And I thought, what in the hell is it just gone for this? But they went on holiday, you know, like that's what they did. And Americans take, we have the fewest amount of holidays, but Americans also take the fewest amount of holidays. And I remember one of my Canadian friends, she started working in New York and she said she worked all of these long hours. And she said, but you have to, because somebody else is always willing to do your job. And so that mentality is costing us, you know, time with family, dinners, less stress. This is going to sound crazy, but I'm not lying. Okay. And this is the honest to God truth. I'm never on vacation. I don't. I'm 24 7, 365. I have to check my email. I have clients because if I don't answer the email, they'll fire my ass, they'll fire my firm, and they'll go to somebody else that will answer that email. Mm -hmm. My family's okay with that. I have to be okay with that because this is the career that I've chosen. I just take advantage of it. I was never one of these attorneys that was like, I'm going to stay chained to my desk and I'm always just going to be sitting at my desk and I'm always going to be answering the email. I had the mentality of, well, I've got a great smartphone. I know how to use it. I know how to use Wi-Fi. I'm going to work 24 seven, 365, but I'm going to work wherever I want to. So if my family wants to go to Hawaii, we go to Hawaii. And if I have to work, I got to work. If I want to go to Lake Tahoe, it's fine. If I'm on a boat and I got to answer some emails, I got to do some things. I have made it work for me, but I'm never off. And yes, that probably is some of the reasons why I'm, you know, stressful or can be, you know, have some anger issues and I'm trying to deal with that. Rudy, until, you're an absolute delight. Uh, thank you. But until, <laughs> but until I stop choosing this career that I have, that's going to be my reality for the next 20 to 30 years. I have chosen that. I have made that decision. Whether or not I live long enough to enjoy the fruits of that, that's a whole other matter, but that's my choice. I, I'm, nobody forced me to do this. I chose this. You know, philosophers are never off the clock either. It's just that if we talk about too much, there's, there's executions. It's because, it's because you never answer questions. <laughs> if, if, you, if the questions executed. are never answered, you're never going to, you're never And we don't make clock. any money. You want to talk about volunteering. Well, um, Liz, what are some of the, what are, what are you working on right now? We talked about the gig economy. We've talked about last time the work-life balance or work-home life balance. What are you working on now? Uh, well, I'm actually going to be doing a follow-up to the gig economy piece and looking at places, uh, some of the states that have gone the other way. I mean, obviously there is just as much as there was a push for better, like more traditional worker protections for people who are gig workers. There's also a push to solidify the definition, uh, the, the I guess the existing relationship that these app-based companies have. And so it's more like a app-based employer protection versus a worker protection. And Rudy alluded to it. Obviously, these are this is mostly happening in Republican-led states in red states. And so that's what I'll be looking at next. And then I definitely want to be looking, I want to look at where, you know, what's going to happen with mid-sized cities. Is this a moment for them to kind of stand up and attract some of the people who wouldn't have been able to move there before? I mean, how is the pandemic reshaping those places? And so... Liz, I got a question for you because I'll tell you, since the last time we talked, which was a phenomenal conversation. Uh, I've loved it. 
many people I know have actually left California. They actually have. We, I mean, friends of ours, people that were had their kids in, in class with my daughter, people that I've known for a long time, they, they've actually left. Now, you already live in the sticks. Have you seen more people that in the last six months? Is, is your rural place kind of becoming a little packed? What's it like over there in Maryland? Um, it is not packed. <laughs> <laughs> So come on down to Smithsburg. There's actually, though, there is there is a new housing development going up. And it, the, the curb cuts and all of that had been laid in years before we moved here uh, in 2018. And then earlier this year, after the pandemic really took hold, and I'm sure this is part coincidence, maybe part not, but that housing development is actually going up. There's like, you know, eight or 10 of those like huge three-story cookie cutter homes going up there. I will say that, again, one of those pre-pandemic trends that I, I do, I'm curious to see how it accelerates. I mean, there's a number of people here I know who have moved up here in the last five to 10 years from a larger urban area and just came out here for the space. How much um, of a difference do you think the Biden administration would have on something like this? On the on on exactly what on on cities in general or, or maybe yeah just on on moving I mean I'm just curious now because we've now that there's going to be a new administration what does that mean going forward with some of these issues do you think the gig economy is going to be workers are going to be protected more or do you think what's going to happen or is this going to still be a states rights issue is the federal government going to get involved Biden and Harris were both against Prop 22. And there has been some discussion. They're going to take something federally to address this. Now, okay. whether whether or not they can, you know, it's going to be very, very interesting because there's there's there are the, there are federal labor laws, but typically state labor laws are the ones that kind of govern the corporations that are within the state. So it'll be very interesting to see what they think they can do. But they'll probably try to do something. That said, if there is a Republican-controlled Senate. We'll see what, what, what they can actually yeah, get I see. done. You know, uh, it'll be very, very interesting to see what they can get done. And remember, the Democrats actually lost a fair number of seats in the House of Representatives. And something is, you know, the, the gig economy and how that affects states and how that affects employees and all of the money. you gotta, you got to think about these companies spent over $200 million in order to get Prop 22 passed. Their stock price rose after it. They have gobs of money to battle any kind of law that will that will hurt their business model. So going forward, yes, you, I think you're going to see a lot of these companies pouring money into things that look more like Prop 22. Prop 22, they were playing defense. Now let's see if they're going to play offense, um, especially with a quote unquote blue administration. I think you're going to hear more things like Prop 22 going mm. forward. Liz, do you agree with that? Yeah, I I think in general I do. It's something that you asked, Gwen, though, kind of made me want to flip it the other way and say, I wonder how where people live and how that's changing will change our political map. Where I live, it's a very conservative county, but like I mentioned, the you know the handful of people I know who have moved here from urban areas are all liberally minded, and I was actually pretty surprised to see a number of Biden signs out where we live. Now, there were way more Trump 2020 signs, but the fact that there were Biden signs at all, honestly, I was like, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, there was no question um, in terms of which way Washington County was going to vote, but it was a 60-40 split, which was actually closer than uh, it would have, you know, than I would have thought. And then that, I think it was um, in previous presidential elections. So that kind of, you know, the spread of people who have been attracted to urban areas and who tend to be more liberally minded now, you know, raising kids or wanting more space or whatever it is, they have a mobile job, looking for other places to live also will 
potentially change our political map, at least around the edges at some places. That's so yeah, interesting. The, fu- the future of the electoral map is going to be something that's going to be very interesting to watch. Texas. Uh, Texas, yeah. So many Californians, everybody that I was mentioning before, they're either moving to Idaho or to Texas. We'll mm-hmm. see how that's going to make things bluer or whittle down the red to like a nice pink or something in, in some, some of these other states. It's very clear people are leaving California. Now, Liz, I know, I know you're a Californian. Have you heard from people that you knew that are like, hey, I'm joining you over in Maryland. You know, how great is it? I mean, Actually, I, do you think do people are exiting California? Yeah, uh, at least one person I know for sure, and and at least one uh, thinking about it. And, you know, I've actually asked my, and of course I won't name names, but I actually asked my parents, you know, they're, they're retired and well, air quotes retired. They both do about a hundred million things every week because they can't sit still. But, um, you know, I asked them about, I was like, so are you finally going to buy that, buy that vacation condo in Frederick, Maryland, and like at least get out of the state during fire season. And, uh, and no, they're not moving. So (laughs) I was like, oh, well, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you got to figure you put enough you've heard of people, I've heard of people. I mean, you add all of that up together and I do wonder how that's going to change things. And if people end up staying and having kids, like what's going to happen a generation now from now Mm. in terms of what we look like? Yeah. Well, Liz, thank you. Rudy, do you have any? No, I'm good. I thought this was a fantastic discussion. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you both for this. No, this was awesome. I, I love this. I love nerding out on this stuff and just, you know, so many takeaways from it, you know, f- focusing on the future. Did you get answers, Rudy? I, yeah, because she's not a philosopher. You see, she answers, <laughs> she's, she's a journalist. And what journalists do is they answer questions, yes. unlike you. I think I you. think I got that this is where we are and we are going to see. I think that that's where <laughs> there was exactly an answer. I think it was, a, well, we'll see. I think that's You say that's potato, I say yeah, tomato. Right. I <laughs> Liz, thank you so much for your time. I, I'm going to link your uh, your website and your articles it's just so interesting to see this work yeah on the economy and then just thinking about the bigger picture and how it radiates into other areas of our lives i really enjoy your work thank you so much and thanks for having me guys always a pleasure thank you have a good day you too Bye. bye thank you so much for listening i hope you had a lovely thanksgiving I've linked Liz Farmer's work to the show notes in addition to Rudy's article from Forbes and an article from the LA Times about Prop 22 if you'd like to learn more about this topic. And if you'd like to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash good is in the details. Okay, I hope you're still wearing your masks. I hope you're socially distanced. And until next time, bye.